Turn, if you would, in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 21. We'll actually read 21 and 22 once again as we get going here. But we're going to finish our study of this last great section, chapter 21, verse 9 through 22, 5, describing the new Jerusalem. And I know it is Christmas time after this week, and, you know, pastors are kind of tied to themes. But I'll tell you more about this next week. We are going to finish up Revelation in the first couple of weeks of December. That's not in defiance of the Christmas time, by the way. The theme of, the, of, of Revelation 22 after this section is the coming of the Lord. He says three times, Behold, I am coming. We are in the same position, in a sense, that the world was in as it was waiting for the Savior to come the first time. And I think there are some wonderful parallels and things that the Lord has to teach us during the time where we're celebrating His coming in that text. I'm looking forward to getting into that beginning next week, Lord willing. But before we go uh, to that, and, and, and before we even go into this text this morning, I would like to direct your attention actually to Philippians chapter 3. So if you can keep your finger there if you're following in, your, in, the, in the Word of God, if you're your copy of the Scriptures, your device or whatever. And go to Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Toward the end of Philippians 3, Paul is admonishing the Philippian church not to follow the false teachers who focus on earthly things. And he tells them, we're not like that. We don't focus on earthly things. Why? Well, he tells them in verse 20, because our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. The believers in the Philippian church understood what Paul meant here in a very special way when he says that we're citizens of a different country. Because they themselves were already citizens of a different country. You see, the city of Philippi was occupied by the Romans about 20 or 30 years before Jesus Christ. It was made into a Roman outpost. They moved a bunch of Roman soldiers and their families and political people into Philippi to keep the Roman peace in that part of the world, in Macedonia. So this is the second or third generation of Roman citizens in Philippi. And most of them had never seen their homeland. People didn't travel around and, and visit places like they do today. They, they usually can say, stayed confined to the location where they were born. And they would follow Roman customs, and they would wait for instructions from headquarters from Rome. But they could only dream of what their homeland was like. And they would be proud to be Romans, but most of them had never seen their, their homeland. And Paul says to them, you may think that your homeland is Rome and you're living away from that city, but really your true homeland is heaven. And one day when the Lord Jesus appears to receive you, you are going to meet him and you're going to realize where you're really from. And so Paul continues in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus. In the Lord, my beloved. 
See, when there's a, a, a teaching in the scripture, when there's doctrine about what's going to come, it's not just to satisfy our curiosity and to fascinate us, although it certainly does fascinate us. There's always something that the scripture is pointing us to live out now in light of what's going to happen. So Paul here is saying, because your true homeland is the place where you will live with the Lord, then stand firm in the Lord now. Walk with the Lord today. Be faithful to the Lord today. You see, there's a principle here that we, we believe, what we believe about ourselves in Christ and about our future in Christ ought to be reflected in our thoughts and our behavior now. In a way, we ought to be practicing some nationalism for the country that we actually belong to, even though we have not been there yet. You know what nationalism is, of course. Nationalism, simply put, is a love for one's own country above any other country in the world. And an identification with that country and a celebration of the values and the message of that country to the extent that we can as believers in Christ celebrate it. Nationalism is the reason that we as Americans dress up in red, white, and blue on the 4th of July and we go to fireworks and we sing our national anthem when we salute our country's flag. I don't know if any of you have been watching the World Cup soccer tournament, but you talk about nationalism. Countries from all over the world are competing right now in Qatar. They're about eight hours ahead of us. And the fans who come to watch their country play, if you've ever seen this online or on, on uh, the device you might watch sports on, um, they deck themselves out in the colors of their country. Many of them, they, they're painting their faces and other body parts with the colors of their country. They wear the traditional symbols of their country. They wear clothing styles. They wear the headdress if they're from African countries uh, or, or some of the Scandinavian countries. And they, they wave their country's flags. And you can tell which team fans are sitting where because it's a wash of color from that country. It's crazy. They're in Qatar, most of them having come from thousands of miles away from a completely different culture, and yet they're promoting the country that they belong to. It's nationalism. They look and act and behave like citizens of a different country, the place they call home. Well, if there's one thing we see in Revelation 21 and 22, it's a glimpse of the country that we really belong to as believers in Christ. It's the new earth that is being prepared for us. And the central feature in this new earth is a city, a new Jerusalem that we've been looking at starting in chapter 21, verse 9. I think it's good to celebrate our country and to promote the traditions and values of our country, at least as much as we can, where we don't conflict with the Scripture. Christians, I believe, living in the world have always had to walk that line between celebrating their country and following what the Scripture says. But the country we really ought to be promoting more than any other one is the one we haven't seen yet the one we haven't belonged, we haven't gone there yet. We shouldn't, we should be living out that country's values, speaking of its truths, celebrating its king, and seeking to bring people into this country, to others delivered from the domain of darkness 
and transferred as a new citizen of the kingdom of God's beloved son. We ought to see people coming into this country. So as we have read and studied Revelation 21, 9 through 22, 5, we notice that John describes the new Jerusalem in three different ways. And each way he describes that city, the central feature of this new ultimate homeland, encourages us to practice a little nationalism, to long for this country, and to behave like ones who are going there, like ones who belong there, like citizens of that country. So how does John describe what he sees from his vantage point in these verses? I mean, we've already looked at two of them. I'm just going to review them very briefly so we can get our heads around what what he is saying here, and then we'll look at the third one together. First of all, he describes the New Jerusalem in this text as the Lamb's bride. And we see this in chapter 21, verses 9 through 14. John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. He's, he's way up high getting to watch the city come down from a particular vantage point. He says it's having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The emphasis in this vision of the New Jerusalem is on the city as the glorious bride entering into unbroken union with her husband. And of course, it's not the city itself that is in union with God and the Lamb, but the people of the city. And we saw that this promise of unbroken, close fellowship with God that is in our future should create a longing in our hearts to fellowship with Him now and to draw near to the Lord as we anticipate this union. But then the picture changes, and John is encouraged by his angelic guide to realize that this city is not randomly built. This city, on a much, much larger scale, is identical to the dimensions of the most holy place, what we sometimes call the holy of holies, of the tabernacle and later the temple. That's why the angel wants John to understand the measurements of the city. They take out a measuring rod and they start measuring things. Why? He wants him to understand that the blueprints that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, giving him the dimensions of the most holy place and the expansion of the most holy place under Solomon when he built the temple, were merely copies of the true holy place to come, this new Jerusalem. Also, we have to remember that God kept his people at arm's length from those copies of the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple. Only the high priest could go in there once a year. But in the new earth, all believers will be welcomed into the very presence of our holy God because of what Christ has done for us. So John says, starting at verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. 
The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city and his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, which, which simply means that he's using the kind of measurement that we would expect. The wall was built of jasper, well, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, which John would have expected. It's the new Jerusalem. Where's the temple? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And as we analyze the various features of the city as the new most holy place. The dimensions of the city, the, the precious jewels that mimic those worn in the breastplate of the priest in the Old Testament, the brilliant radiating light of the glory of God's presence and the fact that nothing sinful can be found there. We are encouraged as God's people to worship him now and keep our lives pure now because we belong to this country that has no night, no darkness, no sin. And we need to be living like we belong there. God is urging us to live and has given us the ability to live like we belong there. Now, there's one final way that this new Jerusalem is described that we'll consider this morning as we finish this really amazing text. The new Jerusalem is described as the Lamb's Bride, the most holy place. And finally, John describes it as the return to Eden. And we see this in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 21. So let's look at these verses. He says in these first five verses, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb to the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the land will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever ever. This is in the first five verses of this chapter, the new Jerusalem, described as the new Eden, 
the return to Eden. Only this is not the return to the old Eden, as good as that might sound to us as we read Genesis 1 and 2. As we will see, this Eden is actually better than the one before. And this brief description of this ultimate Eden should cause us to long for this place. God's trying to to tantalize us, to tempt us, to tell us that what we have here, as good as he is to us, is not all there is. And what we see now will seem so very small and temporal and incomplete and unsatisfying when we understand that place. Now, in order to do that, we need to look at the original Eden in Genesis 2 and 3 and look at the Eden that he's describing here. So I'm going to ask you to toggle sort of back and forth with me a little bit between the original Garden of Eden and the garden we find here in Revelation 22. And just so you know, we can we can go so much deeper with what I'm doing with all the details that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 uh, and 22. In fact, Brother Bobby sent me an email randomly. Didn't know I was preaching this message this morning. He said, I found this somewhere and it's a list of all the comparisons between the first two chapters of of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. So I'm probably going to disappoint Brother Bobby and not go that deep, you know, into this this morning. Uh, But we're going to look at at least five different comparisons between the original Eden and this one. So going back to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 7. So we just sort of get this text in our minds. Um, in Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. In other words, and this is, I think, important to to, to understand, God created and prepared Adam to live in this environment that he had created in Eden. And he placed him in that garden. He didn't create him in the garden. He placed him in that garden, having prepared him to live there. And that is what the Lord is doing for us now. If you are a believer in Christ, he has made you a new creation in Christ. He's preparing you to live in that world forever. Verse 9 says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, notice, was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, including the tree of life. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. I think a lot of you have probably observed that the garden is not technically called Eden. Eden is the territory where the garden is located. But later on in the Bible, particularly in the prophets, uh, Eden, the, the garden, is starting to be called Eden by itself. So the technicality of the name sort of disappears. So we we can talk about this garden as the garden of Eden. 
Adam and Eve were put in this garden for two reasons. And I'm summarizing a lot here. But two reasons. Number one, quality of life. God wants to give us good things. He loves us as his creatures. God wanted to give them abundant blessing so they could fully enjoy themselves without hesitation as they communed with God and marveled at his beautiful creation to look at all the things they could see and to smell all the smells and, and, and hear all of the sounds and taste all of the tastes. But secondly, they were placed there to take care of the garden, to, to take uh, Part of their care of the garden as an act of worship to God. When Genesis 2.15 says that God put Adam into the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, those two verbs, work and keep, these are the same Hebrew verbs that are later used to speak of Israel being called to serve the Lord. And the verbs used of the priests performing duties in the tabernacle. Sometimes Christians wonder, what are we going to be doing in heaven forever? They're thinking of the stereotypical images of people sitting on little clouds, right? Playing their harps. I mean, that, you could think that would get a little boring after a while, you know? <laughs> is there anything else to do besides sit around in this cloud and, and, and play my harp? But of course, this image is all wrong. The Bible never says this kind of thing. First of all, even if heaven could be thought of of so many little clouds that we're sitting on, which it is not, heaven is only temporary, the new earth is forever. And what are we doing on this new earth? In short, we are going to be doing the same thing that God created us to do in the first place. We're going to be enjoying God's incredible creation and his goodness. And we are going to be enjoying God himself. And we are going to serve God by caring for his creation and ruling over it and managing it and exploring it. You think we've tapped into everything that God has created so far? We probably have not even scratched the surface. So with this in mind, let's go back and forth a little bit between Revelation 22 and here in Genesis. And we'll keep our eye on Genesis 2 and 3 as we make some comparisons. And I, like I said, I want to make five different comparisons between the original Eden and uh, the garden described for us here in Revelation 22, especially to show how much better and complete this garden is in Revelation 22 compared to the one which we just looked at. First of all, the first comparison, I want us to look at the river of life. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And likewise, in Genesis 2, 10 through 14, it speaks of a river that flows out of Eden, watering the garden before dividing into four rivers, uh, flowing to various parts of the earth and, and watering, nourishing that part of the earth. But notice the difference. In Revelation 21, the river flows from the very throne of God through the middle of the street. So that down the middle of this main thoroughfare in the New Jerusalem, there is a river. This river is described as being bright as crystal. And back in 21, chapter 21, verse 21, the streets of the city are described as pure gold, like transparent glass. So you can imagine the beauty of a river bright as crystal flowing over a street made of transparent gold. And notice it is called a river of life. 
doesn't say that in, in, in Genesis. It says it here. It's a river of life. So what this indicates is life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the city and ostensibly out to the rest of the world, bringing life, eternal life, to everything that it nourishes. The way a flowing river nourishes the ground around it as it flows is only an illustration of what this water is like, bringing eternal life to everything that it nourishes. Now, I want to add something here. You will not have eternal life when you get to this new Jerusalem, this this new earth, because you drink this water. There's no indication of that in Scripture. If you are saved... It's because you have placed your faith in the death of Christ for your sins and his resurrection that you already have eternal life. You are in Christ, and Christ will never die again, Romans chapter 6 says. Death no longer is master over him. And guess what? We never will have death master over us. We live forever because of Jesus Christ. So why do we have this water of life? Because drinking this water of life will be a celebration of the life that we already have from God. And the water flowing from the throne of God over the entire earth depicts the fact that the the entire new earth will be nourished by this life-giving water. There's a second comparison, and that is the tree of life. And the rest of verse 2 says this, Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We don't have time to look at every reference of the tree of life in the scripture and in, in, in Genesis even, but I can summarize what we know. God planted the tree of life in the middle of the garden. The word tree, both in the Hebrew language and the, the Greek language, actually, when it refers to the tree of life, is actually a word that can mean a single tree or a bunch of trees. We have words like that in English. In fact, we might translate this the wood of life meaning that there's several of the same kind of tree. It doesn't mean that there's one tree. It's just a kind of tree. And God told Adam and Eve, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, eat every kind of tree you want to. So Adam and Eve had access to this kind of tree also, the tree of life. But they would die if they ate from the tree of the knowledge, if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when they ate of that forbidden tree, God, remember, put them out of the garden and that he protected not the tree that they ate and sinned by, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He put the cherubim there to protect the tree of life so that Adam and Eve could not continue to have access to that tree and eat from it and live forever. It seems then that this tree is the original, uh, in the original Garden of Eden would provide Adam and Eve with life as they continued to eat it. But now on the new earth, Believers will again have access to the tree of life. We will not be kept away from that tree by the cherubim. In fact, the thought struck me as I'm looking at this text. We'll be worshiping God alongside the cherubim. They're not going to keep us away from anything. But in this Eden-like New Jerusalem, the tree of life appears on either side of the river. Do you see that? Remember, it's not just one tree. The idea is that the tree of life lines the river on either side like a grove stretching as far as the eye can see. 
Also, these trees, the ESV says, will bear 12 kinds of fruit. You see that there in the translation. The word kinds is actually not in the original uh, Greek New Testament. It literally simply says 12 fruits. And, 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 and interpreters are left to say, well, what, what does he mean by 12 fruits? It could mean 12 crops of fruits, 12 kinds of fruits. And it says it's yielding its fruit each month. I don't know if that strikes you as funny, but if we're talking about eternity, there are still time references in this text. How does that work out? I'm not going to tell you. I have no idea uh, how it works out, actually. But think about it for a second. Revelation 21, we already read this, and it says comes up later in Revelation 22. There's no night there. If there's no, no night, nothing to distinguish day and night, there's nothing to mark the days and the weeks and the months. And there may still be seasons or months somehow. I, I really can't say, but, but either this means that there will be a fresh crop of, tree, of the tree of life for every 30 days or so, or it's John's way of saying that there's going to be a super abundance of this fruit. Remember, he has never had to describe this before, and he's trying to figure out how to describe what God is showing him. But notice also that the leaves of the tree of life play a role also. At the end of verse 2, it says that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Healing? Healing from what? Because back in 21.4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What is there to be healed from? Well, again, that's just the point. The leaves of the tree of life have a health-giving property that can likely heal physical illness or spiritual illness. But just as we do not need to drink of the water of life in order to have eternal life because we already have it, neither do we have to steep the leaves of the tree, say, in the water of life to have this healing. This is a celebration of the quality of life that we are in, already enjoying with God and the Lamb, our Savior, forever. Our drinking of the water of life and eating the fruit from that tree and maybe even using the leaves of that tree will be for the sheer delight of it and for the celebration of the life that we already have in God. There's another comparison. It is the reverse of the curse. Notice, he says in verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. Obviously, there was no curse in the garden to begin with, but sin entered into the world because it entered the garden through disobedience. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the life situation of those involved in the sin. A curse is kind of like a negative promise that things are going to go bad for you because sin always makes things go in a bad direction, always. God cursed the way, the serpent, uh, cursed the way of the serpent who deceived Eve. He cursed the way of Eve in bearing children and in her relationship with her husband. He cursed the way of Adam to work a garden of all things. And we have that part of the text here. He says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. This is why I hate yard work, by the way. Um, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So there is a curse on nature, a curse on relationships, a curse on childbearing. And these curses manifest themselves throughout the earth in many other ways, through enmity and war and disunity and crime. There are other evidences of God's curse of sin in the earth today as well. Enmity is a curse. Death is the ultimate curse. But on the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, there is no curse because there will be no more sin requiring a curse. No situation no relationship, no activity, no labor, no skill set that will not function perfectly as God fully intended. Instead, we will find in the heart of the city the throne of God and the Lamb and His servants. As His servants, we will worship Him. The word worship here is not the word that means to bow the knee, although bow the knee, as we heard this morning, is one of the words translated worship in the New Testament. This is a different word. This is the verb latruo. We don't really have an English word that quite corresponds to this word, latruo. But the easiest way for me to explain it is to say it means I serve and I worship at the same time. We kind of have this in English. We call our services sometimes a worship service. And we understand that we're not going there to do something like like clean the church. We're going to worship. That's the kind of word it is. In other words, our worshiping will not be only a bowing down, a bending of the knee, although there will be plenty of that. But this is a worship that involves our service. All that we do for God on the new earth, will be an act of worshiping Him. We will use our uncursed skill sets, our uncursed labor, our uncursed talents and relationships to honor God with our service and therefore worship Him. There's another comparison. Eternal communion with God. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Adam and Eve obviously enjoyed close communion with God in the original garden. We're not sure exactly how God manifested his presence there. We're not told specifically. The closest understanding I think that we have is Genesis 3, verse 8, where it says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Have you ever paid attention to that? The sound walking? in the garden, in the cool of the day. And this was after they had sinned. So their reaction was not to run before God and rejoice in his presence and greet him. Instead, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Later on, God tells Moses in Exodus 3.3, no one can see me and live. And Jesus declares in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. No one. In fact, 
invisibility is part of God's essence because a spirit, by definition, is unable to be seen. There are theologians, actually, who believe that no created being, not even the angelic beings in heaven, have actually seen God. That's what Jesus did for us. He showed us the Father. So this promise, if it does not mean they actually see the face of God, because God is a spirit, he has no face, is either a reference to the fact that we will behold the face of the Lord Jesus or there is some way in which we'll behold God's face or perhaps that we will continue to come into such a close communion with God, the God who created us, that we will be as if we are looking at him face to face. This is the only way that John can put it, that we will be that close to God. And I would urge you to contemplate that idea for some time. It will cause you to shudder with joyful anticipation mixed with sheer terror to actually behold the face of God, to to be in His presence. That's why Adam and Eve in their state of sin hid themselves. They were afraid of God because of what they had done. And their relationship with him was broken, but not anymore, not in the new Eden. And if we are tempted to think that God would ever turn us away, John says, and his name, God's name, will be on their foreheads. We've seen this already in Revelation before. Why do we put our names on things? Because we want people to know that they belong to us. You put your name on your serving dishes, some of you, before you bring them to the church when we have a meal because hopefully you'd like to get that back someday. We put our names in books, at least I do. I don't, I don't get one of those nifty little sticker, stickers, you know, that says this book belongs to, you know, I've tried those stamps before, I just lose them, you know. So I've just taken to a, a black permanent marker and scrawling Greg Stikes, you know, somewhere uh, in the book. And if you ever attempted to steal one of my books, um, I don't know if you would ever want to read one, uh, but I don't do it on the inside page. You know, I do it, some, I do it a couple places inside where nobody's going to see it. You know, I'm trying to be really sneaky. But why do I do that? Because I'm like, this book's mine. I belong to this. I'm, I freely let them out if somebody wants to read them. I don't care about that. But I, I, this is my book. We're like, we're like that about our stuff. It's mine. Why? Because we love our things. I love my books. I'm grateful for the opportunity to own them. They help me. But you know what God does? He writes his name on us. And he doesn't write it on the bottom of our foot or our back, someplace where it's hidden from view. He writes it on our foreheads for everyone to see. Some are going to ask, is this an invisible mark that only God can see? I mean, are we going to be celebrating forever uh, on this new earth with God's name on our foreheads? I hope it's not an invisible thing that nobody else can see but God. Because I want to live for all eternity with the name of God on my forehead because that is his precious mark of ownership. Declaring that I belong to him that he actually values me for some reason because of Jesus Christ, that he loves me and he loves you as a believer in Christ. And I live, as I I live forever in his immediate presence, serving him with the gifts that he gave me to surrender back to him, his name is on my forehead. I love that idea. 
There are so many wonderful things to explore that God is telling us about in this text. I want to make one more comparison. We see comparisons with the river of life, tree of life, the curse, communion with God. And finally, comparison number five, our unbroken glorious reign. He says in verse five, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. When God first created human beings, this is what he says. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them reign over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That was God's plan when he made us, male and female. This revelation in Genesis 126 lets us know a few essential pieces of information that makes all the difference in what we are called by God to do and to be. First of all, we're created in God's image and likeness. At the least, it means that we are capable of loving him with all our heart and living a sinless life that pleases him. We're designed to be that way. Second, we were created to exercise dominion over the earth. We were made kings and queens destined to reign. But sin changed all of that. And since the fall, we have been undergoing a remarkable transformation. If I can get a little heady for a second, Augustine put it this way. In the garden, Adam and Eve were passe pacare, passe non pacare able to sin, able not to sin. This is, this is what Augustine actually said. I'm putting it in Latin there. Pecare, obviously, is the Latin infinitive that means to sin. And you can work that out as you see the words. They were innocent, but they could still be deceived into sinning. They could make a sin choice, and obviously they did. But after the fall, they and all of their descendants became non passe non pecare, not able not to sin. Apart from redemption, we cannot help but sin. It's in our nature. We're going to go away from God. When we place our faith in Christ and are rescued from sin and darkness, however, we become passe non pacare, able not to sin. In other words, we have the power to choose not to sin. And by God's grace, we exercise that power not as often as we would like, not as often as we should, but we don't have to sin as God's children. We have been liberated through the gospel and the Holy Spirit to use our energy and resources to act righteously rather than sinfully. But our situation will become far better than this because when we are in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, we will serve the Lord non passe pecare as those unable to sin. We will never sin again. Somebody might say, does that do away with our free will then? My answer is, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> I just know I don't want to sin anymore. And my God is going to take care of that for me. He's already made me a new creature with new desires. But one day I will be able to reign over the world in the task that God gives to me and glorify him and please him forever in unbroken loyalty and holiness for his 
glory. Revelation 22 verse 5 says, night will be no more. Not simply because there will be the radiance of the Lord illuminating everything, but because spiritual darkness will be a thing of the past. No sin, no darkness, no spiritual decline, no heartache over wrong choices ever. God will be our light and we will reign with him forever. In the new Eden, this perfect Eden, the Eden that is so much better than the original one could ever hope to be. And these are the ways that John describes the new Jerusalem, the the, the Lamb's bride, the most holy place, and the return to Eden, a better Eden. And if we can revisit my thesis for just a minute or two before we close, how does God want us to live now as we yearn for what our lives will be then. Going back to what I said at the beginning, I think we need to practice a little Christian nationalism. We need to behave as those who are destined to live forever in this new Eden. I think we need to long for this eternal homeland. We need to read Revelation 21 and 22 and other parts of Scripture which point us to the future. Not to ignore the present. God has a will for us right now. But to remember that things are better that are coming. Try to imagine what great things the Lord has in store for them who love him. As we appreciate the sheer beauty and joy of that country and the freedom from pain and sorrow and sin and the presence of God, the lesser temporal attractions on this earth will begin to lose their luster and the trials of this life will begin to lose their sting as we begin to understand what it means to set our mind on things above. Prepare your heart and mind with longing for that place you truly call home. Secondly, I think we need to celebrate the eternal life that God has given to us that we will realize in that homeland. Celebrate that life now. You are living forever because you are in Christ who lives forever. And one of the ways to celebrate that life is to let others know about it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, that God himself always leads us in a celebration of what God is doing for us in Christ that spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, he says. For those people who are perishing, I'm summarizing a little bit of what Paul says in this longer passage. He says, for those people who are perishing, this, this, this aroma is an aroma of death. But for those who are being saved, for those who will rejoice with us and believe our Christ and embrace his gospel, it is a fragrance of life to life. Another way I think that we can live now in light of what is going to come is invest our talents and resources and energy in something that you do for God, for his glory, and not for your own glory. We are, giving, we are going to be giving our hearts and minds and bodies to the Lord as an act of worship on the new earth for eternity to come. In fact, everything we now know will be over so soon. So we honor the Lord now, who has already been preparing us for that service by serving him now. In fact, if I can go to the Apostle Paul again, most of us are very familiar with what he says in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, by, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual 
worship. That word worship is the same that we find in Revelation 22.3, the noun form of latruo, I serve slash worship. We tend to compartmentalize our worship. We, we relegate it to Sunday morning worship or private devotions or some other time we're gathering and, and are expected to worship. But there is also the sense of worship where everything we are doing should be bringing glory to God so that we can say, may God be pleased with this. We offer our very lives just like a sacrifice on the altar for our God. But that sacrifice is not a final act of devotion and then our lives are over. It's really a continual act of devotion whereby we finally realize what our lives are all about. They're about giving ourselves to God, enjoying God and serving him in his creation for his glory like we were created to do in the first place. The difference between living here and living in that new country is that we will finally be liberated to do what we were created to do. But God is pleased when we yearn to live for him now. That's why Paul begins the entire final section of his great letter to Romans with this appeal. Present your bodies now, holy, acceptable to God. This is our act of worship. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, for thee. And finally, I think we honor the Lord and look forward to what he has for us when we do not stop fighting sin in our lives. When we're not worry in, we're not, uh, we're not uh, weary in our struggle to be holy. Yes, it's true that in that new country, we will not have the possibility of sin. Nothing dark or unclean ever enters into that glorious place. But if you know the Lord, that dissatisfaction that you feel and that disgust and that discouragement you see, you feel when you see sin in your life and the frustration you express, crying out to the Lord, confessing your, your sin yet again, it's because you are a new creation, a citizen of a new homeland. You're being equipped to be there. The Lord has already given you what you need through the Word and the Holy Spirit and His grace to say no to sin and yes to devotion to Him. So don't grow weary in doing good. I do not believe any of us understands the sheer release that it will be when we make that journey and finally know what it is like not to struggle with sin. So don't let the frustration discourage you, but allow it to whet your appetite all the more for that glorious homecoming. These are the ways John's vision, I think, entices us, fascinates us makes us long for that great day. His vision presents the new Jerusalem, the crown jewel of the new earth, as the bride of the Lamb, indicating the closeness we will share with Jesus Christ someday. And as the most holy place, the holy presence of God, where his people were always kept back from, but now were welcomed in because of the blood of Christ. And as a return to Eden, a better Eden, a glorious Eden, where we'll finally know God and enjoy him forever. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Father, we are...